Howdy, Green Rush Nation. We have a great fill-in episode this week with episode 409 of Marijuana Today, featuring guest Dr. Jahan Marku, who speaks with host Heather Sullivan about a recent bibliometric study on cannabis, finding an increase in legal marijuana research, as well as the science behind a recent appeals court ruling making Delta 8 THC legal. Enjoy! And welcome to episode 409 of Marijuana Today. I am this week's host, Heather Sullivan. I'm an advocate, a chronic cannabis consumer, and I work in the legal and compliance side of the industry for Cureleaf, one of the large multi-state operators in the space. However, the opinions I share on this podcast do not reflect Cureleaf's management or corporate perspective. These opinions are mine and mine alone. First and foremost, as usual, I want to thank listeners for joining us today. There are so many places to get your cannabis news these days, uh, and it does mean a lot to us here that you take the time to let us share the news and our opinions with you. So today I am thrilled to be joined by longtime Marijuana Today regular, my favorite man of science, and objectively the brightest person in the industry and the movement, Jehan Marku, Dr. I should say, Jehan Marku, founding partner at cannabis science consulting firm Marku and Aurora. He's got over 15 years of experience in academic research, industry, and government relations. He is one of the few humans in the world that has earned a PhD focused on the endocannabinoid system. He currently serves as editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Endocannabinoid Medicine. And personally, I find him to be one of the most passionate advocates for the medical benefits of cannabis, for consumer safety, and for holding our industry to the highest standards. Welcome back to the show, Jayhan. How's things going? Things are going well. Thank you, Heather. You're welcome. You're welcome. So it's just the two of us today. Um, I've been doing a couple shows lately that's just kind of a one-on-one. I, I have to say, I kind of like it. Um, it's fun to have that in that more in-depth interaction together. It feels a little bit more like a conversation. So why don't we just get started? Listeners, pack a bowl, if you so choose, while we unpack this week's news as we get serious about marijuana business, science, and politics. Let's jump in. So as you know, Jayhan, when you come on the show, I go deep, well, deep for me, <laughs> into science around cannabis and what's happening. And this week, we had a very interesting um, article pop up, uh, the Journal of Cannabis Research, um, which is not a journal that I'm particularly familiar with, uh, but the Journal of Cannabis Research published, published a new bibliometric analysis last week, detailing the growth of research on cannabis over time. Now, this growth in research has occurred despite what we know, federal prohibitions continued stranglehold on access to the plant due to its status as a Schedule One drug. So researchers in this study, our researchers found nearly 30,000 studies have been published in about 5,500 journals over the last almost 100 years. Uh, researchers concluded that the last 20 years have seen a steep growth in cannabis research, which they attributed to the $1.5 billion dedicated to cannabis research between the years 2000 and 2018. Now, I want to let folks know, you know, that 1.5 felt to me initially like, wow, we, a second, you know, we talk a lot about the need for additional funding. 1.5 billion, whoa, that feels like a lot. So I want to put this into perspective for folks. 
First of all, the United States funded about $1.4 billion of that $1.5 billion. And remember, this is over 20 years. So that averages out to be, in the United States, about $77 million a year, right? To put that in perspective, the U.S. alone spends about $83 billion a year on medical research. So cannabis is getting about 77 million of that 83 billion. Doesn't feel like it's really a significant amount of money at when I when I started really unpacking it. Although I will say that the researchers in the study, I mean the last line in their study says significant funding towards marijuana research. Now, I'm guessing, Jayhan, that you have an opinion about that topic. But first, I want to get a little bit of a better understanding of what is a bibliometric study? Right. So bibliometric studies um, are popular, and they're these nice, rigorous methods that you can use to explore large volumes of publications, particularly with scientific data. And you can start to unpack, you know, these nuances of a specific field as it evolves. You know, it sheds light on emerging areas of that field. So, for example, in the study, they looked at different key words for different conditions. So you could see, um, for example, not only what were popular areas of research, but where it was published um, and what journals and start to sort of make associations um, with the topics. It's also used... Um, it's sort of in its infancy, but it's starting to be used more and more in business research. And it's sort of an underdeveloped tool. And people are kind of developing it more and more and more. Um, you know, just doing a search for publications on something like, you know, Google Scholar isn't, um, you know, isn't quite a bibliometric analysis, but um, there are some free resources out there to do this. Um, and so basically it's used to do sort of a cross-disciplinary assessment of, you know, different trends in a field. And it's, it's primarily looking at handling large volumes of scientific data, as they did going back to the 1800s, looking at publications. I loved that. Um, this is fascinating to me. And one of the reasons why I find it so fascinating, and you know, Jayhan, I am no science expert, right? But this was one of the few studies that I felt like, oh, this would be scientific research that I could actually do because it's scientific research on the research. And I am very good at research, uh, not <laughs> scientific research. But I was like, this is I was blown away that this is that this is something that people do. Like, I had no yeah. idea. I'd never heard of this type of study. Um, um, well, I've had fun doing this type of research in the past. You know, um, you don't not, you know, I think people will be shocked to learn that probably 99% of what researchers do, do does not get published or does not get published in a peer-reviewed journal. And so this really represents a fraction of, of the work that's probably been done to date. Think of all the pharmaceutical companies that have probably done some sort of cannabis clinical trial and never published their results. Think of the private companies that have done that research and never published it. So this is really just looking you know, uh, through the keyhole um, at that. And, and I've had fun with this. You know, I published an article on Rolling Stone uh, online and it was about how to you know pick your college basketball teams based on the cannabis research output of the university that is a type of bibliometric analysis so i tried to reach the common person and to bring this technique home to them for sports betting i guess i did not i did not catch that article i am going back <laughs> I'm going to check it out. You know, it was interesting, Jayhan, because, of course, as I was reading through this study, I'm looking for your name. <laughs> so I am looking for <laughs> your name. I am looking for your name. Uh, your journal. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the study results only give a, you know, a limited list right. of them. Um, and you didn't make it that, you know, you didn't yeah, make the cut the this time. And uh, I'd also think the big takeaway here is if you looked at the top countries for research, Israel did not make the cut. And I think that's the one of the number one take home message. The number one take home message is for cannabis research, the USA is number one. USA, number one. We are the 
powerhouse of cannabis research. I've been saying it for 10, 15 years. You don't have to believe me. You can trust these researchers you've never met or heard from that published this article. Uh, they, uh, they're saying it loud and clear with clear data. And so I think that's a really good something to calibrate your baloney detector with. And the next time someone says, oh, this country's the leader in cannabis research, you'd be like, well, then why was every significant major discovery done in the United States or with funding from the United States? And I think that is a very important consideration that we should have some hometown pride for discovering the receptors, for all the developments we've made, for approving cannabinoids, at least isolated ones at the, at the FDA ahead of a lot of countries. And, and despite having all this research published, like I think we said almost 30,000 publications that they included in this, which may not include things like abstracts, research posters, all this stuff is sort of in this gray area of publishing, book chapters, all the other books that are out there in the popular literature, those are not included in this. So that, that number might even be higher um, as well. But despite all this information, <laughs> and I know we're gonna get to this probably later, but this, despite all this, we have very little information about what consumers are using. So we have all this information about Delta 9 and CBD in a very narrow lens. We have almost no information that means anything today about things like Delta 8, Delta 10, HHC cannabinoids, any of the other weirdo stuff people are cooking up in their bathrooms and kitchens. That's not in the research. That's not being studied, at least that we know about. So you mentioned this a couple of times that there's research that isn't being published. So, I mean, if I think about that and I hadn't thought about this before this conversation, that's why I love having you on the show because um, you always make me think. So, you know, one of the reasons why I can think that maybe pharmaceutical companies who do research on on cannabis might not publish it is because they don't like the result, right? Like it, it's not, <laughs> and I'm not, I mean, right. You're not going to, if, if you're privately funding research, you're not going to publish something if the results of it didn't come out in your quote unquote favor. You know, you know, it's, it's funny, Heather, you say you're not a, a scientific expert, but you certainly ask a lot of good science questions. <laughs> um, but you're absolutely right, you know, and, and, and people don't publish negative results. And it's been kind of this talk uh, in the publishing area about having a journal for people to publish things that don't work. And so if we only publish things that work, and again, when you do research, um, you know, researchers, whether it's in the clinic or it's in a test tube or in a little mouse, you know, if researchers were studying how a car worked, like how the engine worked, they get rid of everything that wasn't important for turning the engine on. Goodbye doors, goodbye seats, goodbye steering wheel. What do you need brakes for? You're studying the engine. You don't need headlights. Do you even need wheels? Um, and so does it really even look like a car by the end of what they're studying? And so you know, the point is, is that people try to understand mechanisms and things that are reproducible and they get rid of all these other factors that aren't important. And so when we only publish things uh, when they work, um, we're not publishing Oh hey, um, you know you might have cured epilepsy in a mouse, but why isn't working? It, why isn't it working in my mice? That research usually does not see the light of day. Um, sometimes you will see, uh, you know, clinical trials where some drugs perform better or worse. But again, like you said, some of that research um, is either one used for patents and developing drugs that might take ten or twenty years. Three, there might not be funding to pay to get your article published because. A lot of journals require you to pay through the nose uh, thousands of dollars, even more if you want your graphics in color. And then once you sign over your rights uh, to the journal, you have to pay to access your article as well. So wait, wait, some wait, people... wait, whoa, 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 wait a second. So <laughs> this is news to me. So I did not realize that, I mean, so when I think about journals in general, right? Like to me, they are the, the top of the, the top of the food chain, right? I, it, I, and again, my lack of sophistication, <laughs> you pay. Yeah. It's, so it's a, the so journal not, doesn't not every... decide that your research is valuable to their readership. Oh, oh, your research is valuable. It brings them a check. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not every journal charges, but most do, especially the higher end ones. Um, and so 
Some require a fee to submit. Some require you to pay after it's been accepted. Um, and it gets really weird from here. So, it, so I think my point of going down this rabbit hole for a minute is that I'm surprised these days that anything gets published at all. Because one, not only do researchers have to get funding for the research, they then have to set aside a few thousand dollars of that for the publishing process, because if it gets rejected by a journal, it has to move on. Then there's the other issues. If you're on the cutting edge with cannabis research, who reviews it? Because you don't just submit it and it gets published. It goes to one, two, possibly three peer reviewers, people who are in the field. Well, um, I, I can, <laughs> I've had some really wild recent experiences because people are not paid to peer review. I, I peer review for a lot of journals like Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research, um, for the American Chemical Society's journals. I get asked to peer review a lot of stuff. Never once, no one I know, um, has ever gotten paid to do peer review. So it's all volunteer work. Um, and so as when things get a little tight around the research lab, people tend not to volunteer uh, to peer review. And, and I definitely think like, for example, one time, um, you know, I submitted an article on, on cannabinoid product safety and I was assigned a peer reviewer and, and he was brave enough to leave his real name. And I, I tend to, if there's an option, always put my name as the peer reviewer so that people know it's open, it's transparent. And this guy um, <laughs> just went off the rails um, because it, and, and it was like it, it was like it's it's uh, sometimes it's very discouraging when you publish stuff because this guy um, was a faith-based healer who does faith-based healing. Well, after he killed twenty patients using unregistered naloxo implants, he um, started went to faith-based healing and does like pray the gay away type cures for homosexuality. He re he was assigned to review um, one of my papers. And um, you could imagine the comments he left. Uh, so I'm just so so. Sometimes you can't control it. And he rejected the paper, said it was so bad, blah 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 blah, um, and, and it wasn't worth publishing. And they're like, the journal's like, yep, see, he's an expert in the field, and uh, that's the story. So you just take it to the next journal until you hopefully get a fair shake and a fair review. Um, <laughs> oh my god! Uh, like I like listeners can't see my face, but I am in <laughs> shock and awe right now about first of all so the journal gets paid but the person who's determining whether or not the research that one did is um legitimate value valued that person doesn't get paid by no and, and so and you where start does to scrape peer review happen does it happen so, yeah. when you submit to a journal and then yeah they... so the journal you submit journals have different processes sometimes you submit a summary sometimes you submit the whole paper then they send it out to people who are third party you know not employees of the journal and they are just volunteers and it's whoever is available and sometimes they're scraping the bottom of the barrel with just whoever will respond and um, and sometimes that really does not help the process. And so sometimes things get published because researchers have to make concessions. Like some people will hold up your public your article saying, "Well, you can't use the word synergy um, in your title or something like that. You have to say something else." And that's actually something else that happened when um, I submitted my first paper looking at THC and CBD and, and brain cancer cells. And we could say synergy in the figure, but nowhere else in the paper they wouldn't let us say it. The peer reviewers. So we said enhanced, greater than additive. <laughs> Those were all fine, but they didn't want us to use the word synergy. So we're just like, okay. And so these, these types of things happen. And so again, um, I think when we look at research, we should always think about, you know, it's a bit like the sausage being made, right? Um, that it's amazing that it even got published. And I, that's why I love to always highlight, you know, the good things about articles is because having been in publishing for 10, 15 years, um, and that's part of the reason why I started to work. Um, and now I've, um, you know, I'm sort of emeritus at American Journal of Endocannabinoid Medicine, letting another um, editor in chief get get their get their feet wet, as it were, with this practice. Was because I wanted a journal that would be transparent, that wouldn't charge researchers to submit, and we would publish controversial things that were backed up by information, just because we didn't like it um, or things like that, and try and assign peer reviewers that actually understood the information. And you know, it, sometimes it'd take a year to publish an article because you had to find someone who would give you potentially the feedback you want, who would be sort of um, you know, a, bit studi a bit you know, professional in how they assess this and not just signing off, oh yeah, it's good, never read it, and, and not just 
using it to grandstand and, and shoot it down. Um, so I think it, it, to me, it's amazing that any research in any field gets published because there's very few incentives for people to publish, especially again, you have to pay to publish and then, um, you know, you're signing your rights to that article away to the journal usually. What does that mean? You're signing your rights away. So that means that, um, you can't reproduce it without their permission. Um, it's, it's, you know, you want to access it. If you say stop working at a university and you, and you don't have a subscription to the journal, you have to pay to access it. Your own, um, you might, your own research. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, if you write for the New York times, but you don't have a New York times subscription, good luck. But I think, you know, maybe even your basic newspaper lets a journalist access their own material. Oh my goodness. All right. So bringing <laughs> this, <laughs> I'm like, but I can't, I cannot get over this. How challenging this part of the field, you know, and then to add on top of it, especially, you know, when you first started doing cannabis research, you know, now it's a sexy topic. I would assume more and more, as we can not assume, but as we can see from this bibliometric study, more and more journals are open to, um, publishing cannabis related research clearly, you know, and I always say cannabis is such a sexy topic. It sells newspapers, Apparently, it also sells journals. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Uh, absolutely right. There, there still are journals who will, <clears throat> excuse me, never publish anything positive about cannabis. Like they just, it's a, they'll just reject it because they're focused on different things. Um, well, and a little and, bit of this research kind of indicated yeah. that that a lot of the research that's out there or that's been out there over time is talking about the harms of cannabis it is related to the harm, the potential harms of cannabis uh, or the impacts, you know, that the, the psychosis issue, so to speak, not necessarily focused on the benefits of cannabis. So we also want to see that. And it, and it is shifting, right? Like that is absolutely shifting. I don't see, again, I'm not seeing <laughs> articles like you are, but I do see more and more research that is coming out saying medical impacts versus negative harms of the substance. Yeah. And that's, and that's think, positive, right? Yeah. And, and when we talk about that, we're really talking about Delta 9 THC and we're talking about CBD. And we're, and we're talking about two substances that have gone through the FDA pipeline. We know the risks of these compounds pretty well. We know about long-term exposure. We know about animals exposure. You know, we know from zebra fish to mice, to, to monkeys, to humans, we know so much about these two compounds in terms of their risk, which is fantastic, which is why in, in the 1980s, the FDA approved THC for extremely vulnerable populations before the receptors were discovered, before the endocannabinoid system was discovered. And so, you know, I know that sometimes when we think about this abuse research, people like roll in their eyes and it's like, okay, one more weird survey about use that doesn't track the amount people use. But despite all this, the, the overall trend has provided us a, a pathway, a map to mitigate the risks associated with these products, which I think has been a tremendous thing and it frees us up a lot to now focus on the therapeutic aspect because we know kind of you know if you're sailing a ship you want to know where the rocks are and to avoid those rocks or to take greater caution when navigating those narrow straits and um, and I think that that's one of the benefits of all this uh, drug abuse research of all this addiction research forensic research um, you know, a lot of like our DNA techniques for analyzing cannabis comes from forensic law enforcement research, um, a lot of the early techniques. So all of this stuff has had downstream benefits for the industry as the industry is learning how to apply it and use it. Um, and so I think it, it, it's really kind of amazing if you think about it, this, this billion dollars that was spent um, I think the drug war was like a trillion dollars, but there is a billion dollars spent on this really paid for all of this um, public research on things that the FDA would require for you to get the drug approved through their traditional pipeline. So it, it's, yeah, they, they've sort of beaten that to death in terms of what they can study and the harms they're looking for. And as tools get more and more sensitive, I'm sure they'll revisit some of these topics. But what's, what's great about these sorts of analyses um, is that you start to see trends, right? And you can start to tease apart things. Well, there's an association between cannabis and opioids. 
What is that association? Which direction is that going? And when is it going up? And when is it going down? And that has led to some interesting breakthroughs. Like, wow, look at these associations between cannabis and opioids in states that have cannabis laws. Look at the, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, true in every country and every city and every state. And, but there are, I think that, you know, when we look at this, we start to see trends um, over time that are really fascinating. We are going to talk a lot about the science of synthetic cannabinoids in a moment, but I just want to kind of put a bow on this particular topic. Do you think that a study like this helps us fight prohibitionists who say, we need more research, we need more research? I mean, (laughs) you know, 30,000 studies, the majority of which were done in the last 20 years, yeah, feels like um, a lot you know, of research. So, you know, and it happens on both sides of the, the, the scope. You know, um, when people like, it's almost like we, some, some people have been hoodwinked by charlatans who like to say that the USA has no cannabis research. And it's like, it seems like too painful for people to admit that the USA is the leader in cannabis research publishing and sure output of research and funding those studies in other countries. And, and I'm not really sure why everyone wants to say some other countries making all the discoveries and doing a lot of the research. And again, other countries are doing great things. The UK, Canada, um, you know, our, Australia is even doing some, some really amazing things. And I think that I get a little concerned, but again, this, this type of research allows us to do some myth busting, allows us to calibrate our baloney detectors. So one, if you hear someone saying any other country but the U.S. is the leader in cannabis research, you know they don't know anything. Um, you know, the other thing is we can see, start to apply this in other areas. So for example, What's next here? Well, we've looked at cannabis in broad terms. Maybe next we do CBD. Maybe someone else listening to this will be like, you know, I'm going to do a bibliometric analysis on cannabidiol. You know what? Maybe I'll do it specifically on Delta 9 THC. You know what? Let's do it on hemp. Let's see what people are writing about hemp for the last 200 years or maybe the last 20. And so you can start to just, you could just go down the alphabet soup of cannabinoids, CBC, CBG, CBGA, CBCA, CBDA, THCV. You could start to do bibliometric analyses on all of these and really start to get objective data to guide um, decisions, research decisions, and business decisions, you know, I think is the real value of this, is learning how to wield it. And so um, I guess, you know, you know, both sides um, of cannabis pro-con love to talk about how there's no research. <laughs> I've often had the unpopular opinion that has not gotten me invited back to something saying, actually, there is so much research that I don't know where to begin at times with reading it. You know, sometimes when people say there is no research, it's almost like they're saying, I don't know where to find it. That's what I hear when people say. It. And, and, you know, I think in this day and age, if you as long as you are literate and you have access to the Internet, I think you can easily find almost an overwhelming amount of information. Now, do we have the information we want? Like, will this cannabinoid help my grandmother's arthritis? We don't really have that level of resolution right now. But again, um, arthritis, uh, Joint inflammation has been studied in a lot of different conditions and research models and in populations. And so we can start to, someone needs to do a bibliometric analysis on that so we can see more of those associations of when this is a good thing and when this you know, doesn't work so well. It's funny because I remember the first time I ever heard you speak at a conference, it was at an Americans for Safe Access conference. And you actually made that statement about... about there being so much research sometimes you don't know where to start and at that time I was blown away I mean by that statement because I believed that there wasn't a lot of research um so if you ever decide to do a bibliometric study then I'm I volunteer as your like um, research (laughs) assistant (laughs) absolutely All right, I think we're going to wrap up this segment. We're going to uh, turn things over to Shay for a moment to give us a word from this week's sponsor. Take it away, Shay. 
We're very thankful to have the support of our friends over at Hedgerow Analysis. If your legal marijuana company needs location-specific data-centered projections to help you plan and grow your business, look no further than Hedgerow Analysis. They have all kinds of fancy computer models backed up by smart blocks of relevant data to help you work out things like where the best place to build your dispensary would be. Or maybe you need help citing a distribution network to ensure maximum profitability for a delivery service. Whatever your location-based strategic problems are, it's likely that Hedgerow Analysis can help you solve them. Pop over to hedgerowanalysis.com to learn more about the company's capabilities and to get in touch. That's hedgerowanalysis.com. Our episode here focused on the recent appeals court ruling on Delta 8, finding it legal under the 2018 federal farm bill. We talked a lot about this last week with Ben and with Chris, two of our regular hosts. When this appeals court decision dropped, the first thing I thought of was Jayhan and how I needed <laughs> Jayhan to explain to me a little bit more about Delta 8, THC, about synthetic cannabinoids, things like that. So my first question to you, Jayhan, is were you surprised by the appeals court decision? Um, you know, not really. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I think there's no shortage of s small courts and cities making decisions. Um you know, what would surprise me is, is a federal court, is, is a much higher level court making a ruling. But um, I, I think that, um, you know, people can show a side of the argument that I think people would, would believe. Um, so I think that the appeals, the, you know, this this three judge panel in San Francisco, you know, they say they found Delta 8 is legal under the farm bill, but it's also still a controlled substance in the DEA. And I think the issue for me, it doesn't, this, this really has not done much to clarify anything because it still comes down to the fact, well, if you get caught with Delta-8, how do you prove it came from hemp? Because otherwise you have a Schedule One narcotic. Um, so how do you prove it came from hemp? Maybe it's all the impurities from the poor methods of synthesis that people like to use to derive Delta-8 from CBD, and you have all these contaminant products that we don't know what they do in your body. Maybe that's how you identify it. But there really isn't a test to say, this is Delta-8 from hemp, and this is Delta-8 from cannabis. Um, so I think that that is still uh, the issue that people are, you know, that, that doesn't make me feel comfortable, you know. Um, and I just hope that this ruling isn't, um, you know, doesn't, you know, it's like the industry just wants to say, you know what, it's, uh, it's legal. Um, and you know what I mean? And, and, and if you get caught with it, it's up to you to prove it came from hemp, like strapping consumers to the front of a train to go collide with law enforcement and saying like, we're done here, have fun with that. Um, so I really feel, um, that, you know, with these loopholes, People love to talk about this loophole. Yeah, the loophole exists. Another name for a loophole is a noose, and you definitely don't want to get caught in a loophole when it closes around you. Um, you're not going to be comfortable. And again, I just think about if you got into a sticky situation and you had a bunch of Delta 8 on you, how would you prove it came from hemp and that it was legal? Um, I think that uh, there's a bit of... Um, recklessness here that could harm the cannabis industry um, as a whole. Um, and I think, yeah, so anyway, I'm gonna stop there for a second um, and just say that this is a, this is not, I don't know if this is that ruling is necessarily helpful for the industry, but um, it's, uh, I, I'm not very, I'm not surprised by it. 
Um, now, I first heard this argument sometime in 2019, I think. And uh, then in 2020, I actually had to check back in show notes. In 2020, on an episode of this show, actually, was the first time that I kind of heard it. Well-formed argument around it. And that was actually by a uh, former state representative of Maine, Diane Russell, uh, who's also a friend of mine, who, um, you know, took it, took it a little bit of a step further. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. At that time, I was like, I didn't say on the show, obviously, you know, first time guests, I'm not going to be like, you're wrong uh, because I have no <laughs> idea, you know, but I was like, Ooh, you know, interesting argument. Um, it doesn't, doesn't seem like it's possible that Mitch McConnell could make that big of a mistake, but uh okay <laughs> i know right like now this was a couple of years ago less sophisticated <laughs> well who knows what information politicians were spoon-fed about this who knows you know without information from about delta eight um and people making up whatever they want i mean you see articles people always love to talk about well delta eight is lighter and smoother and comes with no age restrictions and all this stuff and it's like you know i hear these baseless claims that are backed up by exactly zero amounts of research that say they do not experience quite the psychoactivity or impairment but yet no one has bothered to do like the pepsi challenge with these things to say well let's let's blind some people give them the substance and see if they can tell whether they're given Delta-8 and Delta-9. You know, they just did a study like this with LSD and psilocybin, and people could not tell the difference of what they were given, even experienced users. And yet we're supposed to believe that all this stuff without any evidence about Delta-8 from the people selling it. Um, so I think that we have to really think about this a little skeptically, um, and especially since my research. So uh, last year, um, Colleagues and I uh, presented research at a, a cannabis conference where uh, members of the FDA attended. And we dug through databases and found actually a huge increase in adverse events related to Delta 8 products. Now, the what's FDA wild about mentioned the, that, Jayhan. That they yeah. mentioned that in their recent warning letter. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's an article we've been trying to get published for a while now. Um, but the results are out there. You can, you can, you can find it, on, I think, on YouTube or um, on the... Institute of Cannabis Research Pueblo, Colorado's website as well. Um, and and the, the shocking thing about these Delta-8, which I think is you know, largely just a product, we're not sure what the purity of these products are, um, but there's a lot of respiratory issues, um, scary respiratory issues um, that you don't typically see with THC or CBD products. Um, you know, normally we don't think about uh, trouble breathing like when we think about THC or CBD, right? That's the whole thing. Respiratory depression doesn't happen with cannabinoids, right? That's something that happens with opioids. It's something that happens with other drugs. That's how people die from, um, you know, for example, opioid overdoses is from respiratory depression. So when we start to see those signals popping up um, in FDA databases for adverse events, it means that the, the, the issue was so severe that someone had to go into a database, like a healthcare professional, and put in the information. Um, and it might have happened at a poison control center, it might have happened on the national website. You know, th th this information is not centralized. And so the fact that we even found a signal um, is incredible. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's interesting um, f to us because we feel like there's a huge unmet need. And that actually led to my colleague creating budsinfo.com. Um, and so that's where we have a, um, it's, it's a site to track adverse events um, as well uh, for uh, cannabis and hemp products. So budsinfo.com, if you experience something weird with a cannabis product, we want to hear about it. Even if you don't experience something weird, you can fill out the survey too. But there's a huge unmet need in tracking adverse events. And and, and if you're tr struggling to understand what I'm talking about, let me put you this way. This is the logic for a lot of these things. People will say, oh, Delta 8 has no side effects because we don't know of any. Um, <laughs> and it's like saying, look, the air on Mars is safe to breathe. There's no atmosphere there. So the air is technically not harmful. I mean, it so, sounds you know, like <laughs> my seventh grader argument for, you know, like, oh, you know, there's no side effects. No one's reported anything. I love, so budsinfo.com. Um, so you mean to tell me that when people come and complain to me about 
they tried this product or that product and they didn't like uh a result you know i i've i've been very lucky the folks that come to me they, they, i've never had anyone come to me with a severe reaction uh to a a cannabis product that they purchased legally. But when people but, yeah, come to me and be. say, oh, I didn't like how, you know, I didn't like this. It didn't, or it didn't work. That's my favorite one. It didn't work for me. I can That's actually, a side effect. I can tell yeah. them, you can go to budsinfo.com and you can be part of reporting yeah. and building the knowledge base around this yeah, industry absolutely. and these products. I love and, it. And, and a side effect could be you didn't get it high. Mm-hmm. You got too high. Mm-hmm. Like, if it's not the intended effect you wanted, that, that's, you know, adver- some people have a very sort of like emotional attachment to when you talk about adverse effects of camps. And hey, I used to have the same way. I started off as a, just like, a, you know, carrying the sword of therapeutic benefits of cannabis. And, and as I started to learn more and more and more about um, how to make it safer, whether it's product safety, whether it's education, whether it's proper dosing, whether it's other components from the plant, you know, I started to realize how important um, this information is, and that if a product doesn't work, that is that could be a an unintended, um, you know, effect. So you know, benefit risk balance is really what we're going for, and um, we actually really do want to know whether or not the product got you high or didn't get you high. That is a huge important question that that we have, um, and we're going to be presenting this research um, in Ireland at the end of the month at the International Cannabinoid Research Society. So I'll be in Galway. If, if you're in the neighborhood, stop on by. Um, we also started to look at other things around Delta Eight as well for our research. So we did a, a Twitter analysis. Um, so social media research is something I've been fascinated with because everyone just puts stuff out there like. So we've been analyzing tweets uh, that people put out about Delta Eight, and some of them are hilarious. Um, so, but but we analyze them, and what we want to do is to look at the FDA announcement and look at people's tweets before and after if it had an impact. And the wild thing is, is that you know there's some interesting trends there, and we're not sure if the information about Delta Eight is actually having an impact or reaching the public that we have about it, because there are so many people who make up stuff and do not get challenged on their sources for the information. And, um, and I think that's, that's one of the um, you know, issues. And then the thing for me about the FDA announcement about Delta-8's warnings and these adverse events and these respiratory issues associated with these products is it never hit the national news. And that's one of the things our social media analysis kind of realized is that you have all these consumers saying things like, don't use that. I felt weird as hell. This wasn't good. My lungs are, felt like this. And you see other people saying, hey, it's free weed that gets you high. Oh, I could, you know, um, and I think that there's some big issues um, around that. But if you go into the Twitter sphere, um, you can find some interesting things. But, you know, health research is uh, on social media is completely legitimate. Um, area of research similar to bibliometric analyses. Like, um, I think it's a very fascinating area to go to. And maybe if you're developing a patent and you want to see if there's prior art, you can do a bibliometric analysis or go on Twitter to see what people are saying. Um, so, you know, to see if what what's what it's being used for, where the side effects are. Oops. So I think, um, <laughs> so again, if you want to know if there, uh, and we have this abstract out, we're hoping to get the research published as well. But um, I think that we're going to be learning a lot more about the risks of Delta-8. And, and, you know, one of these things, this, this article that you shared with me, Heather, showed is that the price is going down. And I think, you know, I think that we, that we can expect this trend. I mean, new garbage comes out. Everyone wants the new garbage. Then it becomes old garbage. And no one wants old garbage, so old garbage gets less. And so now we'll have some more new garbage getting recycled. And we'll see that will probably, you know, so I think this downward trend is a of its value is a direct um, reflection of one, the quality of the products, the, uh, let's call it, there are members of this industry who think it's fine to sell products to people of any age. Um, and, and I'll just tell you this, uh, researchers and I have gone into stores incognito to look at products, to look at labeling, to look at who they're selling it to. And it seems really weird to me when some young looking person with a backpack goes into one of these unlicensed boutiques, um, says, I'm having trouble concentrating. And they pull, say, oh, I got some extra potent here for you to help you study. And, and they give that to them. Now, we can't confirm the age, but we can observe the sales and practices. So there's no phone number to call on these products if there's an issue. Um, there's very little education. And a lot of these products are usually hemp sprayed 
with different um, chemicals and products. They even sell dabs of this stuff in some of these shops. And again, you know, if this was a licensed cannabis dispensary that had oversight, was paying their taxes, was, you know, getting the products tested, was doing educational campaigns, had testing results available for the consumer, you know, I, f I would have really very little issue with this. But the truth is a cannabis dispensary can't even have products in the display cases in most jurisdictions if someone underage walks in. And so, um, again, this is an issue I get a little fired up about because just because cannabis in its natural form is safe doesn't mean that, um, you know, boiling it in acid for an hour and then repackaging it, uh, it makes it just as safe. Um, I think, yeah. So t t explain to me a little bit about this. So, I, so I'm reading, you know, it's, I'm seeing the term synthetic. Uh, the term synthetic when it comes to anything related to my cannabis makes me a little bit nervous. Although then I start thinking like, oh, well, wait a minute, is like a vape. So it, talk to me a little bit about how these products are made, um, what some of the processes, I'm sure you've done a little bit of research on how people are making this legal, I'm using my finger quotes, folks, this legal uh, <laughs> Delta 8 product. And then also, like, I have been seeing a lot on um, THCO, which is another, I believe, synthetic derivative from the hemp plant. And like, so talk to me a little bit about how it's done. And then talk to me a little bit about like what you might be seeing that could be cut. Like what, like, is there something that's the next one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this is a bit of an arms race with the next generation of drug manufacturers or drug dealers, whatever term you want to use, people who are not going through the legal licensed channels to manufacture, cultivate, distribute these products. Um, so there's this illicit market at best that exists in a very clear gray area. Um, so this is not new. This is something, you know, Delta 8 has been on the DEA's radar for a long time, a very long time, so much so that it is listed in their orange book as a Schedule One drug because it meets one of these definitions that you can derivatize it quite easily. So the World Health Organization's uh, Expert Committee on Drug Dependence published a clinical review many, many years ago on isomers of THC. And some people use this as a way to say, wow, look, CBD can be turned into all these different versions of THC, uh, THCO acetate, uh, um, you know, 11,5 uh, dihydroxy CBD. You could make, um, you know, Delta 8, Delta 9, Delta 7, Delta 11, Delta 10, 9 alpha hydroxy, 8 alpha hydroxy, ISO THC, also CBN, and all the versions of CBN you can imagine. Um, there's, you know, 11,5 dihydroxy Delta 9 THC for those of you who are looking for something completely unregulated and unknown. Um, but this, again, CBD is a great scaffold to. And, and, and a lot of it's quite simple. You boil it in hydrochloric acid or acetic acid, and you make a bunch of THC isomers. Um, and this, again, um, was originally published as, hey, people, here's a bad idea. Do not do this, because this is going to create all these isomers that we don't know what to do. You need to be very careful. Some people saw this thing that said, this is a bad idea. Don't do this. And we're like, this is a great idea. We should do this and sell this to everyone. Um, and so what happens when you take CBD and you boil it is unless you're a highly skilled chemist, of which there are very few, and most highly skilled chemists have day jobs, so they wouldn't do this, but they uh, will boil this and they create maybe 20, 30% is uh, Delta-8 or their target compound. And the rest is who knows what. There's a lot of THC, Delta-9 being made. There's a lot of other cannabinoids being made. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of isomers that people are making, um, you know, and, and for various reasons. What are some of the risks here? Like you've described a process um, and you mentioned, was it hydrochloric acid? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that people can use. So one of the risks is that they'll be left over, just like when we, we worry about, um, uh, but, uh, butane extracts, right? We worry about leftover butane. Same thing. You could have leftover byproducts. Um, they find a lot of olivetol 
and other things left over in Delta 8 products. Um, and, and also, again, these products are unregulated and testing is, um, let's say, voluntary and not very popular with these products, which means that they could also be spiked. And indeed, people have found in these gray market products, Fubinaca and other drugs that I don't want to get into too much spiked in these drugs. Um, and then, and some of the people who have made these products are looking at some serious penalties um, because they, again, people get sick um, and eventually it gets tracked uh, down to the people who made it. Um, but the where rest of these products... Where would that... Um, so where would that come... <laughs> where would that... So FDA, um, local police... Uh, uh, all of it, all of it. I mean, I cannabis, think... Um, so, but cannabis regulators well, that, <laughs> wouldn't... Right? Like cannabis it's, regulators it's, it's wouldn't... It's not cannabis. It's, right. it's not cannabis. Right. It's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not medical cannabis. It's just a... You know, it's like... Um, you know, I heard a journalist once ask me, is this like going to a hobby shop and buying glue and, and you know, and sniffing glue? Is this what this, the, these compounds are the equivalent of? Because it's not like, you know, it's, it, technically it's supposed to be a textile. I don't know if people have read like Mitch McConnell's like work, but they're like, this is a great textile to rejuvenate the South. And, but like people are smoking the textile. So if it's a textile, like why do you need health and safety regulations for an inhalation? And, and so it's like this kind of like, you know, there's this, it's June. So every, it's like guess a Gemini approach to how we want to manage um, Delta. But the, the risk of these products is, is that we don't know anything about them. I mean, it, it, it's really, you know, I, I was talking to a group of uh, troubled youths, uh, you know, like 18 to 22 year olds um, with my colleagues. We do cannabis, um, call it cannabis awareness, really cannabis education, just to answer their questions. And I'll never forget the look on this young woman's face. And she just stops me in the talk. She says, wait a minute. So, this product, like I used this product, I used it a while ago. My friends use this. You mean they don't test it before they give it to us? They don't test it on, on people like, like a clinical study? I said, no, they test it on you. You're their testing population. You're their guinea pigs. And she, her head exploded and she looked around the room. And it's like almost yelling at her fellow classmates like, are you people hearing this? Wake up. We this want is crazy. Her. <laughs> we want her. It, join us in this space, right? That, it, but she's right. Um, this, this piece, this Delta 8 piece, um, having a young teen who's kind of pushing up against some of these, um, you know, it's time for him to start trying things out there. He's, you know, he's less of a child and more of like a little... Um, test tube of like trying all ugh, ugh. um I, it is ex, you know it is extremely concerning to me i i have a local store nearby we go you know he he was buying his skittles regular skittles candy there but he can certainly turn to the huge display of delta 8 gummies and one day say hey i want one of those instead and i I think that they'd sell it to him and they kind of feel they have the right to. There's no and, and, regulation and the, around this. And these access points might be believing the, the packaging that says these are non-intoxicating. But it's, it's like this. They talk out of both sides of their mouth. It's not intoxicating, but it has a similar high to THC. Well, which is it? Um, and, and if it causes relaxation and makes you feel good, um, it's altering your cognition. And I think that we have to always be aware of that. And I think, again, just because Delta 9 THC can be metabolized by the liver and leave, doesn't leave like residues behind, um, it's not the same. I mean, there are pharmaceutical drugs that have been approved by the FDA that if you take too many of it over time, you'll have, go, you'll have pancreatitis, right? Because residues will build yep. up. And so there could be significant aspirin. health issues. And s or, or Advil aspirin, yeah. is one of those that yeah. like people start Advil, to have yeah. really, um, really challenged, uh, really struggles uh, gastrointestinally if you're a chronic. Yeah, you know, and, and and the thing, and I think we also have to remember, like when it comes to adverse events, if you look up CBD, like Epidiolex CBD, but they just call it CBD in databases. There's thousands and thousands of adverse events being reported, but that's because it's an FDA-approved drug. It's well known, and it's it's easy to report it. The fact that people are starting to report these isomers, and again, databases don't have open field categories where you can just punch in 
11 alpha beta 2 hydroxy blah 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 it has to be there so the fact that this is in the database and is getting signals with no advertisement people are looking for places to submit adverse events on these products that that's the real i think issue that is you know we, this is not a time to bury our head in the sand i think the industry really um you know i think regulators either one need to create a pathway with the industry to regulate these products to make sure they're as safe as possible because i want to be clear i'm not talking about you know a delta 8 that is um available as it occurs on the planet mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. naturally occurring that, that is, shows up in um, your in your testing results as one right. of the compounds in your plant Right, exactly. Where we, where I think we get into trouble is let's take this part of the plant that we know nothing about, ramp production way up, and sell it to children. What could possibly go wrong? Um, and that's this sort of like brazen, reckless thinking that, that um, I don't think many, you know, I don't think like, you know, the multi-state operators of the world want this. Um, and I think it comes down to education, which is why my colleagues and I are actually going to high schools. We're trying to educate youth about this no money involved. We're literally taking time out of our day. I mean, Thank I didn't you. even like going. I didn't even like going to high school as a kid, and now I'm going back as an adult. Um, so you know, that's how important this issue is. Who wants to go back to high school? Um, and so, and, and and you know, this group involves people who. Um, one of the gentlemen involved, um, Tim Schmale, who brought us all together, used to own one of the first licensed uh, vertically. Uh, integrated licensed companies. It was both accredited by patient or certified by patient focus certification and, and other groups as well. Wait, is that Tim uh, from Maine? Yeah, yeah, Tim from Maine. Oh yeah, he, uh, so yeah, I know him. <laughs> yeah, so he's helping uh, bring me and other researchers together to develop this high school program. And we first did it for his alma mater because they were catching, kids were getting caught, you know, they don't find cigarette butts around, you know, high schools. Uh, too much these days, but they do catch kids vaping and they don't know what to do. Just sending them home doesn't seem to do anything. So they decided that instead we're just going to make you watch a video from people like Dr. Mark and Tim Schmale and other researchers um, to learn about these products. What are the risks of doing it now? What are the risks of doing it later? What do you actually know about these and how they affect your body? And um, I think that uh, the response of the school systems has been um, you know, positive. But again, we're, you know, we're, I think we have extra impetus. And when we hear rumors of dare, uh, being reinstituted in, um, places like Michigan, just because people are so desperate for some sort of education. And, and this again, is not a scare tactic. And, you know, we have a colleague at Temple University, Dr. Sarah Jane Ward, and she does a lot of drug addiction education. And she's found that even fourth and fifth graders respond really well to science not just being told don't do this because it'll ruin your life and you'll never have any friends but if you actually talk to them about how their brain works they're very curious they'll ask questions like well where are the most receptors for this where is this how does this happen how does this work um it's like talking to me so I, <laughs> yeah exactly so i think that um these isomer issue is is a serious issue um and i think uh we have to think about how do we protect the most vulnerable populations here and really starting to be drawing a distinguishing line between regulated products and unregulated products um, and really being honest about the legal implications um, of this uh, product. Just because there's a lack of enforcement and federal authorities are being silent, uh, that does not make me feel more comfortable that federal authorities are silent on the issue. That to me speaks volumes. Because again, uh, maybe they just haven't chosen to take action yet. I mean, look at New York. New York has doubled down on penalties for people operating unlicensed, quote, cannabis dispensaries, as well as possession of those products. Because uh, they haven't given out licenses for adult use yet. So states are responding. States are banning these products. So sure, it's legal, but it's banned everywhere. And you know, if you need an analogy, think of outdoor cultivation. It's it's legal in Colorado. It's just banned in every municipality. So, like, so sure, you can, lots of things could be legal. I think, you know, this is, I find this so fascinating. And you, you mentioned that the MSO side of it. And while certainly I'm not going to speak for the MSO that I work for, this, of course, is a topic of conversation. And, um, you know, regardless of how you feel about MSOs, um, we see this as an issue. It, you know, 
first of all, there's, there's safety out there. Right. But it also, one of the things that I've noticed personally is that, uh, friends, people around me, not in the cannabis space, they see these products and they identify these products as being safe because they've been hearing from me about the safety of legal cannabis. They don't recognize the, that, that what you see in a gas station it, you know, and I use that as an example, but what you see in one of these boutiques or in a gas station, this Delta 8 product, likely, like you've said, hasn't been tested, um, isn't properly labeled. There's no way to actually reach the company that made it if you want to talk to someone there. And, you know, of course, my beating the drum of, yes, that's because you should be buying your cannabis product from a regulated company. And I think to kind of put the bow on this. And it's very rare for me to speak about, um, challenges that my own company has had on this podcast. It's very hard for me to talk about that, but, but, it, but I mean, it's in the news, right? So, uh, this week our company was, um, was served a complaint, another lawsuit on an issue that we had in Oregon where we were producing CBD products and THC products, on the same production line. Um, now, nothing I'm saying here is um, information that isn't already out there, right? Like we as a company, we own our mistakes. We made a mistake. We didn't have the right standard operating procedures in place to ensure that when we thought we were doing a CBD oil run, we actually were doing a THC oil packaging run. We, you know, confessed our sins, so to speak, with with the regulators, paid a a fine that was assessed by the regulatory body. I believe in that state it was one of the highest fines paid in that state, changed our SOPs. Like I remember when this happened, it was all hands on deck. How did this happen? I mean, to the degree that the, you know, chief compliance officer of the company was reviewing videotape to see exactly what happened in this situation. Um, we have... And I think, I would say I would applaud that effort. I mean, anytime a company engages in a recall plan, anytime a company catches something like this, it's so important. It shows that the regulations are working. It shows that the industry is evolving. And, and I think we, I'm thankful for that level of responsibility, not just being like, this didn't happen. It's a conspiracy. Right. <laughs> and the reason why I bring it up on the, on this show is because I felt it was very important for me to ensure that folks understood that your Delta eight THC products that you don't buy in a regulated, you will not have that same re response. What will happen is those products might just go off the shelves in that particular area, right? So some, so something happens like that and a company says, ah, we're probably not going to sell in Oregon anymore. We'll just focus on California or New York or Maine or Connecticut. So, you know, that is the value of a, a legal regulated market in real time. You know, certainly we didn't intend to make this mistake, but when a mistake happens there, there's a way to catch that for folks. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Do you Absolutely. have, so. yeah. I'm, so I'm curious, do you have anything else on this Delta eight topic before we wrap things up that you want to, you want to share with our listeners? Again, I just say, please check out budsinfo.com. It, it's, uh, you know, in its, you know, beta stage, we're trying to get as many people to utilize it as possible. We're trying to make it as simple as possible and easy as possible, um, um, to, to refine this. And it's casting a big net for just you know, we say adverse events because that's the professional technical term for unwanted effects. They could be serious. They could be non-serious. You know, again, um, share your experiences um, and, and help us understand this issue as it evolves. And and do do me a favor. You know, I'm a cannabis a qualified expert witness, and it's really you know it's really heartbreaking to see people um, going to trial for this sort of stuff. People losing their jobs um, over this sort of thing. Um, I've definitely been involved in more than one employment case um, regarding either um, a, a products from this gray area. So uh, I hope if you listen to this, I, I, you never have to hire me as an expert witness to um, you know, keep you from losing your job, going to jail, or, or perhaps um, other issues um, around these products. 
I hope no one has. I hope <laughs> listeners don't have to hire you either. But if they do, they've got one of the best expert witnesses out there. Um, all right. So I think we'll wrap up this segment. And we have put in about an hour today, Jayhan. Do you have another any other topics? I think we're going to leave this at two topics today. Um, both of us have, you know, it's it's today we're recording on a Saturday. It it's, looks like a gorgeous day out here. Um, I think we'll wrap it up uh, at this point today. And then maybe we'll come back with finishing moves and wrap things up. Sounds good. Awesome. All right. into my favorite segment of the podcast, Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves. Finishing Moves is the part of the show where our guests can talk about anything they wish. And today, I'm going to just put a plug in for the return of my favorite bingeable uh, television event, Peaky Blinders. Peaky freaking blinders is back, ladies and gentlemen, this week. Uh, it is, I believe, the last season. So get your fill of Thomas Shelby uh, while you can, folks, because it looks like this is the end of the road for the old boys. How about you, Jayhan? I know that was just a silly, a, a fun little silly oh. summer finishing move today. No, Peaky Blinders is, is fun. It's quite a... I watched that first season. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say two things. One is, uh, just to put a cap on our discussion today, um, and if is that something that C.S. Lewis once wrote, and that is, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. And I think uh, about that a lot when it comes to the field of cannabis and psychedelics as well. And I'd also just say... When it comes to things like your brain, um, you only have one of them. So, like, try to take really good care of it these days. That, that was an excellent finishing move. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jayhan, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. What a great conversation. Uh, I've got to put out my thanks to Shay Gunther, our fearless producer. He is a rock star, man, uh, and a really good friend of mine. You know, I was a little bit down this week, and and Shay kind of, you know, really worked hard this week, throwing some jokes my way, uh, really got my mood back up. So I, I got to say, you know, buddy, we love you, Shay. Um, you sliced these episodes together so well. Um, I just really appreciate the hard work that you put into Marijuana Today. Now, of course, we couldn't do this without the generosity of our sponsors. So if you'd like to join us as a sponsor, reach out. We would love to show you how your dollar goes further with Marijuana Today on your side. Got to give some love to Overclock Remix for the tunes. And I want to remind listeners to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch our show so that other cannabis nerds can find out about us. One thing I want to say right now, which I never get to say, is one take, Shay. I believe we did this episode in one take, Jayhan. No need for editing this week. <laughs> um, so, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Marijuana Today, and I hope you have a safe and healthy marijuana tomorrow. One take, Shay. One take. <laughs>